Hi, everyone. Before we start this episode, we want to reiterate our support for those across the country that are striving to make America a just country that is free from systemic racism. We support and we believe that Black lives do matter. We believe that as Ubuntu, we are here to express our solidarity and we also believe in collective action as well. And so earlier this week, we posted our video expressing our solidarity along with relevant links and resources that are helpful during this time. So we want to reiterate our belief that none of us are free until we are all free and that solidarity comes first for our community. We are Ubuntu. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Ubuntu Podcast. Good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to the Ubuntu Podcast. Thank you to our listeners. I'm Zhao, and my co-hosts are... Hey everyone, this is Hanok. Super excited to be here again. Look forward to another great episode. What's good, everybody? It's your boy, David. Nice to have y'all along for this episode. Thank you. Just to share our mission statement here at the Ubuntu podcast is to create a radical, uh, thoughtful space for African diaspora to deeply explore how we can create, sustain, and struggle to achieve a genuine community and solidarity across the globe as a people of Africa and African descent. Just to give you all a recap of episode seven, we discuss uh, colonialism and imperialism. These are topics that are thrown around quite a lot, but it's more resident now in the time we're in with everything that's going on uh, with black people globally. We see just the ruins and the legacy of colonialism, whether it's in the continent of Africa or with whether it's how it impacts its descendants across the globe. As we're seeing now, the United States, this is a legacy of colonialism. It's a legacy of imperialism uh, that black people have been dealing with for the last 500 years. Please check out that episode. We're here to answer all your questions. We're just here to have a dialogue and create a space for discussion. Check out episode seven. And now to do an introduction for this episode, as I'm so excited, we are so excited for this discussion to happen. It's on the diaspora and the return. I'm so happy today. We have a special guest here help lay it out for us and to dive into this conversation that is just going to blow your mind. And so without further ado, to David for Africa in the News. Yes, yes, Dow. Thank you very much uh, for that lovely introduction. I will also not be revealing our special guest just yet. Well, our special guest with an S as in plural, because we got a few people online that y'all just are going to really enjoy today. But I am going to be doing Africa in the News and also very excited that this is our season one closer, y'all. That is crazy. We have been delivering to the people eight beautiful, wonderful episodes from the depths of our hearts and souls. And we're just very grateful for those who have been able to be a part of this journey thus far in shaping what is the Ubuntu podcast. And in honor of our eighth episode closer, season one closer, we're talking about, as Dow said, the return. And so I thought it would be appropriate to form our African the News segment around this whole concept of returning. But for a particular group of African individuals, we've been talking about the descendants of slaves and what it looks like throughout history, these notions and ideas of returning 
returning to continental Africa. And so I first want to open up my African news segment with a little bit of African and African-American history. So many of you may or may not have heard of a man that goes by the name of Marcus Garvey. And Marcus Garvey was a Black individual born in Jamaica, and he lived in New York City, a large part of his life where he really formed his critical ideology around what we now claim as Garveyism, which is essentially the idea that the Black survival economically, politically, socially of captured and dispersed Africans is wholly reliant on our return and our repatriation back to the continent of Africa. And so Marcus Garvey was a huge leader in the 20th century all across the Western Hemisphere in Central America, in South America, in, you know, in, in the U.S., obviously, but also even around the world in the U.K. He was galvanizing Black individuals who were a part of the working class, who had seen that their nations that they were torn from were, you know, built on their backs, built on their labor, and they were not receiving any of the benefits or promises that they would expect generations later. And so he created the United Negro Improvement Association, which at the time was the largest African-American affiliated membership organization in the country. Experts say he had over 2 million members at one time, and these members really organized. In 1920, they created a really detailed plan, a manifesto about how they were going to create avenues and pathways to return African people in the United States to Africa, specifically the country of Liberia. And not only were these people about talk, Marcus Garvey was actually able to create a, a shipping company, purchase steamboats that were actually used to conduct trips and really create a, a, a publicly traded company where members bought thousands upon thousands of shares. And so there were a lot of trips conducted between New York City and the Caribbean and the West Indies. They never actually made it to Liberia. There was a lot of issues concerning, for lack of a better word, paperwork that, uh, that, the, that the systems and institutions used to disrupt Marcus Garvey's efforts. But I want to trace what he started to like, are there any contemporaries that kind of still hone in on what he's trying to, or what he was trying to do? And so I, uh, an Al Jazeera report actually published in 2018 based off of a movement called Blacksit, which is chronicling the, the numbers of African-Americans who are born in the U.S. who are moving to Africa voluntarily to escape what is institutional racism. Currently in Accra, which is the capital of Ghana, there are estimated to be close to 5,000 African-Americans there. And this report really details why they chose to come and what are the things that they are doing with their lives and how excited and happy they are to be actually building Black wealth and to be building and being a part of a solution and, and supporting the continent. And so I think when you talk about that and you think about what Garvey started, you see that there are actual remnants of it. And, you know, to some people that may seem small, okay, a few thousand here in Ghana, a few thousand here in Senegal, a few thousand here in the Gambia. But I also wanted to introduce in, in, in current times that there is a, there's an alliance. There's an alliance that was recently formed. It was announced on March 16th called the Exodus Alliance. And the Exodus Alliance is comprised of six organizations all around the continent of Africa. And their goal is to take one million African families, descendants of African slaves across the world, America, Brazil, the UK, Australia, from every corner of the earth and bring them back into Africa. And so these six organizations are comprised of different development groups that are actually building out plans to create a repatriated physical city. Um, there are media groups and marketing groups and outreach groups and 
involved in this six organization alliance to begin conducting message testing and to begin to spread the word around uh, actually repatriating people. And even the United Negro Improvement Association, which Marcus Garvey founded 100 years ago, they are a founding partner in this Exodus Alliance. And their goal is to essentially raise $1 billion in the next 24 months to begin this plan. They say that their goal is to repatriate descendants of the transatlantic slave trade in the diaspora who are suffering political and economic genocide worldwide back to the continent of Africa because they want to repatriate all those who desire to return to their ancestral homeland and assist them in all areas of reintegration back into African societies. And so this is an alliance that's really not playing games. They have very ambitious goals and they want to take what Marcus Garvey and other people who have been talking about repatriation for a century and really scale it and really bring people home. And so there's all kinds of interesting issues I know they're going to run into, all kind of amazing conversations and strides I know they're going to accomplish. And so I want to just bring them to the forefront to really drive the legitimacy of what a return could look like for individuals who are descendants of slaves. And if you want to support this alliance or learn more about them, please check out the links that we will be providing in our episode description. And if you want to share what they have to say, even donate to their cause, because if this becomes a real realized movement, you know, we might know some people who are a part of it. They're gaining or are are having consent of um, to repatriate people in Senegal, Ghana, Sierra Leone, and they're trying to, they're having conversations right now with Nigeria and the Gambia. And so that is this Africa in the news. Got a little history bits in there in honor of our season closer all about diaspora and the return. So I'm going to turn it back to, I'm going to turn it to Hinnock actually. Um, and thank y'all for listening. Yeah, thanks so much, David, for another really great Africa in the News segment. It's our last of the season. I've personally really enjoyed these and have learned a lot from all of your segments so far. I actually want to take this time now to introduce another important member of our team. Now, he's a good friend of ours, and he's actually played an important role as an executive producer. His name's Nati Bulcho, and in his role, he's actually been really integral in all areas of the Ubuntu podcast, especially as it relates to content, writing, and just overall production support. We actually ended up having him help us out in some pretty funny circumstances, and I'll have him kind of share more about that a bit. But yeah, I just want to welcome you, Nati, over here, and go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Awesome. Thanks so much for that introduction, Henok. I'm really excited to be on the podcast today. You know, it's been a lot of fun so far. And like you mentioned, it's pretty funny how it all how it all kind of came together. I'll, I'll just reiterate, I'm uh, Nati Bulcho, friend of Dao, friend of David, friend of Henok. Known them all since college. I actually knew uh, Henok growing up. We went to the same church. But yeah, funny find the kind of circumstances that, that led to me joining the podcast. Henok and I work next door to each other in, in Maryland. Maryland and we you know tend to get coffee sometimes after work and so we were at a coffee shop one day just catching up and he was telling me a little bit about the podcast and just how he was doing uh, and you know Hanuk's a popular guy and so uh, I had to leave catch a train and he had someone else that he was meeting with afterwards who was coming in and we kind of overlapped and when his friend came in he he asked me hey are you are you a part of the podcast as well and I jokingly said yeah I, I am 
And he said, oh, what's your role? And I said, I'm the executive producer. Uh, and then he's like, oh, what does the executive producer do? Uh, and to be honest, I didn't know. So I just kind of made up a bunch of stuff that I thought sounded pretty good. <laughs> and and afterwards, he was like, oh, that's cool. And I told him, oh, no, I'm just I'm just joking, man. I was just here hanging out with hanging out with Henok. Uh, but afterwards, I think Henok went back to David and to Dow and was like, guys, I think we need an executive producer. <laughs> and so uh we had a conversation and I, I told him, yeah, you know, I would love to, to join and to be a part of this. I think it would be a ton of fun. That's how I was able to join the podcast. And since I've been on, it has been such a wonderful experience for me. I've had a chance to be a part of kind of the strategic planning as the executive producer of the podcast, the episodes that we go through, the topics that we discuss, you know, facilitating some of our prep sessions our visioning and thinking through, you know, future partnerships and things like that. So it's it's, it's been a new adventure for me, a creative endeavor that I haven't really done before. So there's, of course, a lot of learning and growing, but uh, to be amongst friends, to be amongst brothers and to have the opportunity to build something together uh, has been a lot of fun. And looking forward now to having an opportunity to be on air as well for you guys to get to know me a little bit. So super excited for our conversation today, for the topics that we'll be discussing um, throughout this podcast. But with no further ado, now I know we just went through one one introduction a lot going on here there are levels to this y'all there are levels i'm gonna do the the next one i uh would love to introduce a close friend of mine a guy who is a Ghanaian, a founder of multiple organizations and in his current role is the chief of staff to the president of walden university that would be my friend my brother isaac cujo isaac welcome to the podcast bro welcome isaac glad you're here welcome sir welcome welcome yeah, guys, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I've been listening closely to what you all have been building, and I can't stress enough, you all have been building something, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I feel like you all have been building a bridge, and I'm just honored to be a part of that, so thank you. Great. Thanks for thanks for joining, Isaac, and, and we'll definitely talk more about that idea of being a bridge or, or, or building a bridge as we go throughout this conversation. As we know, that's a a lot of the work that you've been doing with some of your organization. Um, but just to introduce yourself to our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are, where you're from, and what does Ubuntu mean to you? Yeah, so, um, you know, when people ask the question who you are, you know, it's, I think I've reached the point where I realize that who you are, your identity is a journey and not just this destination. Um, and my answer to that question has changed so many different times. But today, I want to say that I'm a hardworking Ghanaian American that loves his neighbor and wants to inspire people to see the same divine in each and every one of us. And I think that's what Ubuntu means to me, you know, extending humanity to others, but recognizing that we are all a piece of infinity. Every single one of us are connected in some way some shape and form there's something within us you know that breath of life that connects us so to me ubuntu means making sure that i i care for you like you are my own and i care for you like you are my brother you are my sister you are my mother you're my father um and loving you relentlessly i think that's that's so good and that point about being a piece of infinity i think that's something that we don't always we don't always think about but it shows how we are all united right and and how we all have a you know a, a common kind of purpose and, and and direction and so thank you for for sharing that could you could you walk us a little bit through your early years i know that you were uh, born in born in ghana spent a few years years there early on 
Um, don't know if you remember too much about that, but would love to hear kind of those those early years, of maybe what you heard about your homeland, if there's not a lot that you remembered. Just kind of take us through your, your journey at the beginning. Yeah, so as a diaspora member, I, I, you know, I, I often feel like we romanticize our early upbringings um, or our early times in our countries. For those of us who were born in our countries and brought here, I used to be the type of person who'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm from Ghana and this and that. But to be honest, I don't remember anything from when I was born in Ghana to when I left. Um, I was too young. I don't have memories of that. But I do remember hearing stories from loved ones who would tell me about my life back in Ghana and, you know, what it was like to walk to the farm. My, my family used to walk to the farm and things like that and various things. I would hear those. But Ghana became this this place that I could only visit through the stories that my parents would share with me. And I don't think that it became a place that I actually had stories from until I got older and I went to visit. And I'm not talking about when I went to go visit when I was like 12, but when I was 18, 20, and, and as an adult that could freely think for himself, um, that's when I started thinking of things. But my early years, my, my connection to Ghana was really in the Ghana that my parents created in our household. We created a little Ghana. You know, you hear little Italy and Baltimore, you hear little, uh, you know, Chinatown, things like that. In my house, we had little Ghana. My parents did not allow me to speak English at home, not because they had a problem with English, but they wanted me to learn their dialects, tree and fonted. So my parents would tell me that you have eight hours at school, master English there. And then when you're at home, speak our tongues. And in a way, I always joked, my parents are accidental Pan-Africanists. They, they were teaching me values and connecting me to my roots in a way that I didn't realize there was so much intentionality to and so much benefit to until now as an adult. When I look back and I say, man, that was so valuable. Those days where we, you know, all members of diaspora joke about it. You'll be in the car and be like, oh, can we get McDonald's? And then your parents are like, there's rice at home. Man, nowadays when I'm driving, I'm like, there's rice at home. Um, and I, there are some combinations and spices and things like that. If my parents didn't teach me to love, I might not have respect for today. So my life growing up, the little Ghana was a, a, a puzzle piece of tree, fonte, traditional dishes. But then sometimes, you know, you go to school, you eat sloppy joe and you have burgers and you have pizza. It was it was its own world, but it was a place that um, I grew to respect and love. Yeah, that's that's so real. And I love I love uh, the the example that you shared about, you know, little Ethiopia or sorry, little Ghana. You know, I had little Ethiopia at home and that's something I always felt where Mm -hmm. you are geographically in the united states right but your heart your customs your traditions the way that you see the world is coming from an immigrant perspective within the country that you're a part of and and there's a lot of nuance to that um and so i'm curious i know you mentioned that early on you didn't you don't remember much about you know your time back home and of course you're, you're so young but as you started to grow um in the United States, being a Ghanaian who spent eight hours at home, eight hours at school, as you said, right? You can't argue with that math. Hey, you're spending all this time at school learning English. Like you're going to be, we want to take some time at home for you to learn your roots. What was that? What was that experience like for you growing up where you saw the world through a Ghanaian lens that was being formed and formulated at home? But then you're also bringing in American experiences into that that Ghanaian household where maybe some other members of your family didn't grow up with that perspective or that American view that you were starting to, to, to build and develop. 
could you could you walk us a little bit through those those early years and what what that transition was like for you what the challenges were maybe that you faced as a new member of the uh, of the diaspora yeah so um, one thing i want to make clear is experiences to me are like a couple of dice you throw them on the ground you could get any number of equations right so the experiences i'll share are only but a small piece of the whole entire like holistic view of my experience in america right but one thing that i want to really touch on is sometimes we forget to consider the socioeconomic background that someone had when they came to this country immigration is not just we all got a visa and came here there's all types of immigrants there's asylum seekers refugees there's people who come through the border, you know, different different ways that we come here. But our socioeconomic background back home kind of impacts the way that we see America when we get here. So for me as a Ghanaian American, I wasn't just Ghanaian American, I was Ghanaian American, but also socioeconomically poor um, when we came to this country. My family is from Bogoso, Ghana, which is a mining town in the western region of Ghana. And while Bogoso has a lot of resources from bauxite, so many different minerals, our land has been activated so much so that we've lost a lot of our resources and the locals, the indigenous people that live in that area haven't been able to reap the benefits of that those those rich minerals and therefore I came from a family that like I said you know my dad tells me there was a time where we used to kind of trot um, eight miles you know my dad we call him papa um, we don't call him dad we call him papa and he he told me that when we were younger he decided when he had his first child and then more children he decided that he didn't want to be called dada um, because only rich men are called dada he chose to be called Papa to let people know that he knew that he was not rich. Um, and he explained that to me. And I thought he was joking. And I spoke to my brother. My brother was like, no, I vividly remember him telling us, do not call me Dada. Call me Papa because I am not a rich man. And I know my stature and I am a hardworking man, but I am not. And my grandfather, we call him Dada because he is a he was a headmaster. He was, you know, my dad was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm working hard. Wow. I'm going to try and get there, but call me Papa. So when we came to America, my, my experiences are probably different from other guys who may have been from the capital of Ghana, who may be from Accra, who may have come from middle-class families and things like that. Because when I came, we were playing catch-up to become lower middle class or even what Americans would consider poor. Uh, my dad used to work. I used to see my dad at 5, like 58 a.m., 5.48 a.m. every day. He'd wake me up, take me to the bathroom, get ready to go to my aunt's house. And so my perception of America and being Ghanaian American was entrenched in this idea that you have to kill your body in order to just make a living here. The American dream wasn't this like this, oh, we just got to run a mile. It's hard but we're going to do it. No, it was like, man, this is a marathon. And my parents are working hard and harder and harder. Um, and my dad, for the first five years we were in this country, there are times where I didn't live with them. There are times where I was living with a cousin, all this stuff was happening. And my dad worked double shifts for five years of his life, right? When we came here. So my interaction with America was really a, my parents were working so hard. So I can't slip up. I got to make this work. And I think I started internalizing this idea that I had to make sure I mastered what it meant to be American. While my parents were working so hard, I had to make sure that I beat the system and I got the dream. So I started trying to fit in, trying to make sure that I fit in. And that's really what my experience was growing up was I, I remember that my parents were working harder than anybody else that I had ever seen on TV, any of my friends, the way they talked about their parents and things like that. So my Ghanaian 
to me in America meant working hard. It wasn't the food we ate, it was working hard and knowing that you had to do it because we were sending money back home to my siblings, to my family, and so much more. Yeah, that's that's so real, Isaac, and that I think is representative of a lot of experiences that happen um, for, for immigrants who come to the U.S. where you are not only playing catch-up, as you mentioned, but while you're playing catch-up, you're also then sending money back home, trying to support back home. So it's like, how can I, how can I build that American dream, right? When I, when I am a part of sustaining the reality for so many others back home, and there's that dichotomy that that people face. And one thing that stuck out to me that you said, I think it was a theme throughout, is that idea of having a unique culture and a unique background that that your parents were very proud to teach you. You said, you know, they were unknowingly basically pan-Africanists um, that that were that were building this pride in your culture and in your people as you grew up. And, and I'm curious, you mentioned the idea of fitting in, right? And the importance of trying to fit in. And it reminds me of, of something that you actually had written a little, a little time ago about the American intern and what it's like to feel like you are always in an audition that never, that really seemingly never ends. Um, and one slip of the tongue, one mispronunciation, one cultural difference, etc. you know, would, would cause people to maybe look at you a little bit differently. Um, and so I'm going to ask you this question again, which I asked earlier, where are you from? And could you answer that uh, and tell us a little bit more about about the article and, and what you were really feeling as you wrote that, as you processed through what it was like now reflecting as a 26 year old, right, on on being that that American intern, that person, quote unquote, trying to fit into into the hierarchy within the United States. Yeah. So um, one, thank you so much for reading that article. I, I can't stress anybody who writes from their heart. It's so touching when people read it and receive it because you put it out there in the world and you hope it gets to the right ears and the right heart. So I'm so grateful that you read it. When when I was younger and I would hear, where are you from? Some people hear that and they think, oh, this is a moment for me to put my country on, tell them with pride where I'm from. But for me, because I was trying to fit into America, it felt like I was being called out. It felt like I, somebody in the moment had just paused everything and was like, wait, that kid right there doesn't fit in. Where are you from? Why, why are you acting differently? And you know, when you work so hard to try and fit in and be a part of the jokes and things that are going on when you're younger, that almost tenses you up where you're like, man, dang. And I can, I, man, I can name so many different things. My mom used to cut my hair and I didn't realize what a shape up was and neither did she in the, in, in the way that people, you know, culture here wanted it. And I re remember like somebody telling me like when I was younger, like, oh man, you got a rainbow shape up. And I was like, oh man, thanks. Oh man. <laughs> and I realized that he wasn't. You know, so when I say, where are you from? I'm not just saying that term, like, where are you from? It's also in like, do you, did you watch the game last night? And you're like, dang, bro, I don't know if we have cable. Like <laughs> I've been watching local channels for years. Yeah, um, that's real. That's real. And you know, where are you from can be so many different things. And when I wrote that, I, I I alluded to, I described immigrants as the American intern, because when you come to America as an immigrant, you go through this long period, and for some people, it's never ending, where you are on a trial basis in this country, where you are hoping to one day become a citizen. You are hoping one day to gain the full rights and responsibilities 
of an American citizen. And you are trying to make sure you stay in line, trying to make sure that you learn the language, learn the lingo, learn the practices. And to me, it felt just like when I was doing internships before I started working full-time jobs. It was like, you're not paying me or you're not paying me well. And I'm expected to do everything that everyone else is expected to do. And yet I don't get the same rights and responsibilities. Sometimes my responsibilities feel greater than some of my coworkers, right, as an intern. And I, I think of it as like being an intern in America, because when you're an intern, when when you're working or you're in the cafeteria and someone says, oh, so what do you do here? And you have to admit like, oh, I'm I'm the new intern. It's like, oh, oh, OK, 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 cool. And it changes the power dynamic, right? When you tell somebody that like, oh, I just moved to this country, it completely creates this power dynamic where they're like, oh, OK. Now, I will admit that now that I'm older, I can recognize that some of the things that I was internalizing when I was younger were stereotype threats that were within me. It, it, it Sometimes it wasn't specifically something someone said. Now, don't get me wrong. There was bullying and stuff that happened because of I was African, there were some things that were really in my head. And I was starting to feel as if that anybody that spoke to me was almost looking to see if I fit in, if I aligned. And like I said earlier, when you see your parents working so hard, you know that they want to be here because nobody would kill their bodies the way that my parents were unless they knew that there was value in being here. So as a child, I could see like, man, if I'm seeing my dad at this time in the morning and he is working and working and working, then I got to make Make sure that I get to a point one day where I am making enough to support them. I am making enough to support my siblings. I am making enough where they can be proud and say, well, this was the American dream. For me, I think I was kind of confronting stereotype threats throughout growing up where it was like, don't mess this up for me. Like when people would be like, where are you from? I was like, come on, man, don't mess this up for me. I've been working so hard. And I remember I have I have two friends and I'll say their name. A shout out to Aristotle Mukamba and Wope Kwame. One is from Liberia. One is from the uh, Congo. And when we were in middle school, I remember we were almost shy about telling each other what countries were parents or we were from. Um, and we had this running joke where one of my, my friend Aristotle had asked me, where are you from? And I said, GH. And for a while he was like, GH? What's GH? What's GH? And I remember in my yearbook, one day he had written, so Ghana? And I was like, no, Glenday Heights, Illinois. And we laughed because it was obviously Ghana. Um, and we, to this day, we're still good friends and I check up on them. But that was kind of what I was going. I was just like, man, don't mess this up for me. I'm working so hard to fit in to your organizational culture, your organizational structure. I am fitting, I'm coming on time and I'm working hard. So unless you're giving me a raise and you're pumping me up, do not kill this for me. So yeah. That, that, I think that's a, that is a, a relatable and, and uh, a very real struggle that people have. It's like, hey, you're at, it's like, I've been working so hard to right, fit in. I've been working so hard to make this happen, right? Because I see that, right? I see the struggle that my family is going through. And, and what you're saying reminds me oftentimes your parents are, are telling you, hey, you know, we came here, we didn't come here young like you, you know, at least in my case, it's like, we didn't come here young like you, this is for you, right? This is our, this is the latter part of our life, right? We're not building a life from, from, from scratch, like just brand new. This is for you to take on. And every sacrifice that we make, right, is to see the dream really through you, right? And your parents want to see the, the their dreams in some ways sometimes. Um, success for them is seeing you succeed, um, seeing you take on these adventures and these opportunities to, to grow and to 
and to uh, progress as a professional and as a as a citizen within the country, as a contributing member of the country. Hi everyone. This concludes part one of our conversation with Isaac Cujo from the Return Movement. Special thank you to Isaac. In part two, Isaac will go more into his own career path, along with the work that he does with the Return Movement and Brothers with Books. We encourage all of you to stay tuned, and we want to thank all of you for listening to part one of this two-part series. A reminder that all the topics today will be included in our episode description. I want to thank all of you for listening again, and a reminder to stay tuned for next week. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Ubuntu Pod and on Facebook at The Ubuntu Podcast. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. You can listen to us on both Apple and Spotify as well. You can also follow me directly on Instagram at Henny Yilma, H-E-N-I-Y-I-L-M-A. Hey y'all, it's Dow. Don't forget to follow me on IG. So it's Dow underscore Doldol. Hey everyone, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at David J-A-Y Curtis with two S's. Thank you. Mm-hmm.